Hello, everyone, and welcome to our 20th episode of the Echelon Cycling Podcast, where we talk about what's happening in the week and look ahead to what's happening in the next week, of course, all about road cycling. And as always, I'm joined by, well, our two regular presenters of Patrick, owner of Audu Cycling, and also the Cycling Dane's very own Mr. Kroko himself. And guys, uh, yeah, Criterium de Dauphiné, Tour de Suisse, Netflix, there's a lot of things to discuss. But, I mean, the first question is... Why is Ewan in a toilet? Okay, so a little bit of Ewan Wilson law at the moment is that I I live in an apartment where it's like a studio apartment and I have a bathroom and I've currently got friends staying with me. So the only place where I can like record in my apartment where I'm like separated is my bathroom. Well, you could just put your friends in the bathroom. That that was the other way around. This is going to go. They'll have the worst... They'll... They'll... They had the worst memory of staying here. They'll, like they'll go back home and say, you know, that that holiday I spent at Ewan's was awful. He shoved us in a bathroom so he could talk about cycling on his computer for one hour. You know. But I mean, yeah, lots to discuss. But first thing, Netflix. They of course came out with their Tour de France on chain. We've talked about it before, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of things to talk about. But yeah, kind of, what are your thoughts on it? I must admit that I was a stern critic of it. And I was actually surprised how good it was. Uh, well, Drive to Survive is amazing. But I don't think it is going to capture new people that much. Judging by Netflix's Facebook page, they have over 5 million people and they only had 5,000 likes on the post. So I think, Patrick, you said this to me that you think it's just going to be preaching to the choir. But for, for Netflix, that would be huge because the cycling sphere is huge. Yeah, I mean, caveat, I've watched seven episodes of V8, so I think I've got like the Hotes Cam one still to go. So I know most of it, but I, I have enjoyed it, actually. I know I've seen some people on Twitter being a little bit critical of parts of it or not enjoying certain elements, but I don't know. I'm with you, Scott. I've quite enjoyed it, to be honest with you. I've enjoyed the insight. I'm not really sure what people were expecting or what it hasn't provided that they were hoping for, because at the end of the day, we were never going to have, like, Pagatra on here, were we? Because he was UAE was never a team. I guess that's the thing. Which, if I was to have a critique, it was going to be, oh, you know, because it is uh, going to be there's going to be a second season that's already been announced. It would be good if UAE were also a team, and you could have the Jumbo and and uh, UAE thing going on. Uh, that would be a good thing because I've been very much enjoyed the Jumbo aspects. I think that's been a really a highlight of it. I think especially, but. Yeah, uh, were you going to say something to Scott? That's kind of like my overall opinion of it. Um, there's Well, some of the critics have said they missed out the handshake between Jonas Vingo and Tadabagacha. I thought that was very strange. It's also only eight episodes, which is very... Normally they do ten. They missed out the Dylan Hoenewegen victory on stage three, which I thought was a bit of a shame. But uh, yeah, Fabio Jakobsen. And they also said Seth Kuss, which is wrong. Setkus. But yeah, Fabio Jakobsen, I think my respect for him has just gone through the roof to seeing him as well. He talks like Nick DeVries, the Formula One driver, which I find quite funny as well. Both Dutch, obviously. But yeah, I think my respect for him has just gone through all all spheres. Yeah, I, I actually haven't had the chance to watch it yet. So I mean, I'm a little bit ignorant on this front. But from what I've seen online, a lot of the discourse is relatively positive, apart from there's one thing that I noticed when I tried, began watching the first episode, which I haven't completed yet. The dubbing, if you watch it with the English dubbing, it's really, really Oh terrible. my god, it freaking is. I gave up after two episodes. Yeah, I had to watch it in French, 
uh, because the English dubbing was so bad and the subtitling as well is questionable at times. So apart from that, it's, it seems like a good success. I feel like it really captures the narratology of the sport. I'm also, I've heard from people is that like casuals who don't love watching cycling have said that the boring elements of a race have been made exciting. Like I've seen that as kind of consensus or like even like boring aspects of certain stages, they've made it seem interesting. They made stage two a lot more interesting than it actually was, which I thought was quite impressive. And obviously they're bringing like the drive to survive aspects to it as well. So that made it more interesting. Uh, Thibaut Pino as well. That was quite an interesting aspect to him. He said like that, that was like a very crazy quote where he says, I think sometimes I'm more popular than I have ability or something like that. And uh, seeing him not win the La Planche stage, not having Israel Primatech, actually, I thought was a bit of a shame. They kind of glossed over the Simon Clark victory. Nothing about Ugo Uhl's victory, which was just a open goal for Netflix. And I mean, I think it was really good. But I also think like I thought, I don't know, Patrick, if you thought this, I thought Jomba Visma were a bit robotic, like Wat Van Aert, Jonas Vingor. Yeah, they're really nice, but there was no really like oomph. There was no character to them in in some respect i can see what you mean but at the same time i think in comparison to the interviews that we're very used to from yuma visma it was relatively energetic i think in a way i actually heard jonas swear that was quite something new that that was quite a pleasant surprise i was like jonas swears oh my word and i I don't know i quite like to be there was a little bit of beef i'm not sure whether netflix exemplified it a little bit but they were talking about how like there's the kind of walton jonas thing which i think but when I was watching it last year, I seemed like I, well, I thought it all seemed to be going quite very well. Like it was all running very, very smoothly. But actually, it turns out that you know Jonas had a crash. I think it was on the Carcassonne stage, which Philipson won, and Wout didn't wait, despite the fact that everybody in Jumbo was called back. And I was like, ooh, spicy. And like, and Jonas was pissed off on the Calais stage because Wout didn't wait for like two seconds of a top of a climb and i was like it's good to see a little bit of friction it shows that yuma visma despite what we have said like we've said a lot of times they are quite a rigid robotic team at times it showed a little bit of friction a little bit of fray in the in the cloth and i was like this is kind of what i wanted from this series and i'm quite happy netflix showed it it kind of had a full circle as well because the time trial stage you get the inside where you hear that Jonas literally says if i'm up on what Bernard." Tell me to slow down so I can gift him the stage. And then you see, because you see Wat Van Aert crying and you're kind of, well, almost crying. And you're like, is that because he's winning a stage? No, it's because he thought it was so incredible what his teammate was doing for him. He was, yeah, really touched by that. But I must say Marc Mario as well. I absolutely love him even more so now. Patrick Lefebvre as well. He was actually quite nice. And Fabio Jakobsen said he is so thankful for that opportunity that he actually risked it all for Jakobsen in a way, because there was no guarantee that he was going to come back and be this all-conquering sprinter. So I would say it's a good, a really good Unchained. But one thing I would say, though, when you're seeing like a random mountain stage, I had no idea where they were on the stage. They could have like made the pro cycling manage, uh, pro cycling stats where we can see exactly where they are on the stage. That That's well inside the power of Netflix to do. So I think small touches like that. But yeah. Oh, one thing as well, Garen Thomas didn't mention Egan Bernal as one of their Tour de France winners. 
And uh, my Colombian girlfriend got extremely angry about that. So yeah, but Rigo Botel ran was in it and he was quite funny. I quite enjoyed it because like Ewan was saying how turn off the English voice dubbing. Like let's just put on subtitles or something because it's so annoying. It's like a weird like one second lag, but it's good because I know that you and I, Scott, were both like learning French and it was actually quite handy in a weird way to have like the French commentary um, especially like episode 3 oh my word they cover Group Palmer FDJ and Azure Desert Citroën <laughs> and I'm like it's so much French my brain was fizzing so if you're a French learner out there turn off the English dubbing you might uh, it, you might you know you get hours of French listening kind of it's just like free tutoring uh, on the side so yeah I, I've really enjoyed it I uh, I can understand what you mean there would be some good things to improve upon but I think on the whole, I, I am impressed and it's what I wanted. So I'm looking forward to the next series. Hopefully this year is good uh, because uh, we'll have some more interesting stuff to talk about next year. And I think in terms of like drawing parallels between this and the Drive to Survive, if you remember that first series of Drive to Survive, that was not the best series. It, it, it only got better with time. That more teams were on board after the first series and it gained more, moment, more momentum, rather. Maybe that happens with this one where... It takes some time to gain momentum. But I do also see that it's not really, it hasn't captured hype outside of cycling circles yet. But that could happen once there's more series, maybe after the Tour de France when people want to discover more about it in a post Tour de France hype. I think that sometimes is more powerful than a pre Tour de France hype for newbies. Maybe, maybe, maybe they'll come through. And I think the next series of LDM Menace Pensado as well will come out fairly soon. So both of those could be quite good. Um, they could complement each other quite well. Well, anyways, uh, talking about 2023 racing as well, not just about last year's racing, the Criterium de Dauphiné happened and uh, Jonas Vingor took the victory, first ride in history to apparently win the Tour de Basque Country and the Criterium de Dauphiné in the same year. What did you guys think of the week of racing? It was just, it was Jumbo dominance, really. Did they, how many stages did they win? Four? Uh, Jonas won two, Laporte won two, yeah, four in total. There's eight stages, so it's very big. Jumbo Visma dominance. Jonas, I think I saw like Jonas's margin of victory was much bigger than is usually seen in the Dauphiné. It was perhaps a little bit predictable in terms of the GC outcome from the start, but it did still produce some entertaining racing, and I think it was insightful in terms of who else is going to be quite competitive in terms of finishing inside the top five the top 10 or even like the last podium place uh, for the Tour de France so it was, it was an interesting race and I think it yeah it did gave some good insights as to what we will expect in in July yeah in terms of a stage race winning it by two and a half minutes the second place is pretty unheard of and it was a strong opposition I feel like the battle for like the like top 10 apart from Jonas was actually quite interesting also seeing how people are riding at the moment where their form is at but this is dare I say the best I've ever seen Jonas Vingegaard I think it's looking pretty good that he'll um he'll be up there challenging Pogacar well maybe even overwhelming Pogacar uh, next month at, at the Tour de France it was I wouldn't say the most exciting week of racing at the Dauphiné. The final stage was interesting with uh, Chicana at La Bastille. Uh, that was pretty interesting. You had the elements of Alaphilippe trying to make it a chaotic surprise GC win. But in the end, yeah, I mean, Jonas, there was no real element of surprise in how strong he was, to be honest. It's a bit, it feels a bit underwhelming, but it's also quite nice to see this, uh, to sort of look in awe at how strong he was. Even if Jumbo Visma, I don't think particularly, yes, they were good in the sprint stages, but in the mountains, they weren't that strong. 
like with, with a full Yumbo Visma mountain train, it could be pretty strong. Uh, well, very, very uh, strong next month at the Tour de France. Attila Valta, though, and Van Baal were pretty strong. Uh, they pretty much decimated most teams. Both of you were saying with the margin of victory, I've just gone through pro cycling stats because I think they've taken away the history page. The biggest margin since 1993. He's got bigger margin when Miguel Indurain was dominating as well. So, yeah, a, a proper statement as well. But, yeah, I was quite surprised with the Australians as well. When you look mm. on the podium, you've got Adam Yates, which, again, for UAE to Emirates, that's a big, big uh, surprise. Well, not surprise, but Ineos throwing him away. Like, they could have had second here. And then you've got Jide Hindley, you've got uh, Ben O'Connor and Jack Haig. Well, not in that order, but what do you think of their performance? We'll talk about the tour later on. I was most impressed by Ben O'Connor. I looked really good here, especially in that time trial. He was really good at Dauphiné last year, building on momentum. For Azure Desert, this is a huge goal. It's their home race in the Alps. It's their home region. And O'Connor's their sort of their big leader nowadays. Uh, so for him, I think he he looked really, really good. Hinley looked solid. He's never been great at one week long stage races, but this one was pretty solid. I think top five in Dauphiné. It was fifth, wasn't it? Yeah. So top five in Dauphiné was is a strong result um up there in, in, in the standings. And Jack Haig, I mean, I was surprised given the fact that he's just come from the Giro, that he could jump into this and still ride a top ten in GC. It's impressive. Yeah, they were just Australian flags all over, like for the top 10. I was like, oh my word, they've taken over. This is insane. Yeah, just echoing what, what Ewan said, I was, O'Connor's TT performance was was really outstanding. Arguably, it comes in a year where the TT is less important in the tour this year, which is a bit of a, a shame that he's really good in something which perhaps might not make the biggest difference in the tour this year, but it's good to see nonetheless. And like you say about Hindley, he's never been that great in one week stage races he performs very well in the grand tours but i think it's just a thing he just gets better as the stages go on but the fact that he's finished quite high up in the dauphiné considering that he's not usually very good at stage races is a very good sign going into the tour that considering he's usually better in grand tours he's gonna arguably take a little bit of a step up then like you say hey coming out of the giro i expected nothing from him i was really expecting something more from lander and uh he was nowhere apart from out the back pretty much that's that's where he was so absolutely just yeah things were really just getting turned on their heads and there was just there were some other names like you say Alaphilippe great to see him back great to see him getting a stage win I think that was a very uh, universally pleasing result for the cycling kind of sphere and good to see him back just at the front just kind of like doing his kind of showmanship and stuff I know some people don't enjoy that but it's just kind of good to have that character around and then like Guillaume Martin stuff it's shaping up for a lot of great riders going into the Tour de France hopefully will result in some really fantastic racing in uh was it three weeks time or something like that well talking about three weeks time Jonas Bingo winning this as we've said so many times quite dominantly and uh, is he now the favourite for the Tour de France, considering the route the team Jombo Visma are bringing as well, provisionally, and of course his fellow rivals? It's always hard to say, isn't it? With with Pogaccia just kind of doing his uh, incognito mode prep for the Tour de France. It's just very hard to, to tell, apart from Instagram posts and stuff like that, where he's gone up the highest paved road in, in Europe, and I'm like, cool. 
I, I don't know what to take from this, but cool. Yeah, Jonas, he, he won by such a dominant margin that that does provide a certain element of confidence that Jonas is going to repeat his Tour de France victory, especially when you consider, like Ewan was saying earlier, perhaps his mountain support here wasn't that great. There was a, there was some help for Laporte and stuff, but there was no Kuss, there was no Krausweg, there was no Kelderman and stuff like that. But So he managed to, I don't want to say make the most of a bad scenario because it it wasn't necessarily bad. It was just that there's room for better climbing kind of domestiques to come into the fray and improve his chances. But I think that he is, at the moment, if, I haven't looked at the bookies, but I would presume that he is going to be going into this as as the favourite, considering that Pagacha's build-up, no matter if he wins the Slovenian time trial champs and the road race, I think that the fact that Jonas has won the prestigious like warm-up race ahead of all these GC favourites is going to be a deciding factor that he is more of a favourite because Pogaccio won't be facing comparatively better opposition in his prep. I agree. I'm, I strongly agree. I feel like, yeah, Pogaccio is definitely... Now that he's not racing, we don't know where to gauge him. So Jonas has more of the momentum in, in his in his favour. I think he, he seems actually pretty okay with it and all this pressure on his, on his shoulders. And that momentum is definitely switching. If we look back in our discourse... After sort of Ronde van Vlaanderen thinking and Paris as well, thinking Pogacar's number one man, it feels like that's now changed completely. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was very, very dominant, to be honest, from Vingo. And I, I, I kind of concur that this is the strongest I've ever seen him. And one personal weakness I've had with, with Jonas Vingo is that he um, he's not quite so good in the rolling kind of classic looking stages, those ones that Pogacar's really good at. But he sort of, he lit up a hilly rolling stage that I didn't earmark for GC at all. And he really rolled with the punches there, kind of accidentally attacked off the front, really. And then even at La Bastille in Grenoble, he was the strongest there on that really, really steep kicker at the end in terms of the GC guys. It's seeming like there's no real terrain that's going to be an issue. Pogaccio's going to get these bonus seconds through sprints and so forth. Yes, but I think hanging on in these like difficult terrains that usually would favor Pogaccio over Vingo, I think the sort of there's more equality now, or at least there's more evidence of equality between them after this Dauphiné performance. Well, I don't know what ProSagman stats are doing. They haven't got their history tab. So I opened up a history tab on first cycling, the one that you and has been talking about. And uh, yeah, an alarming statistic for any Danish fans. We've had no Danish Tour de France winner that has won the Dauphiné and then gone on to win the Tour. Obviously, it's only Bjarne Reese and Jonas Fingal, but... Uh, Jakob Fulsang has won the Dauphiné twice and he never won the Tour de France. Bit of history to correct there. I, for one, I want Tadabriacha to be on his best form. I don't want to just see Jonas Bingo right off and win the whole thing because last year, like both were saying, was such an incredible addition. If you're neutral, if you're a Pogaccio fan or you want a Spingold fan, I think that battle was definitely won for the ages. So is there anyone else you think that could, if, let's say, Tadabriacha is not there is there anyone else who can kind of come out of the shadow and rival Jonas Bingo? Adam Yates, that's it, to be honest. Um, all these guys that we were sort of earmarking for that interesting battle for third your Carapazes, your Enric Mass, these kind of guys they were all a bit underwhelming at Dauphiné. Yates was good, and I think that's a little bit worrying in the in a sense that Yates, who will probably be Pogacar's best helper, was really good form here so that's probably one thing UAE will take out of it as a positive they also rode really well I think as a squad with a lot of their Tour de France guys Micah rode a good race I thought um as a sort of domestique which will be next month for Pogaccio once more but 
to be honest, Yates is the only man I see could possibly contend Jonas. Maybe Hindley if he gets really into the swing of things, because I was I was really impressed with his Dauphiné here. He's a guy who's done really well in Grand Tours formats. Maybe he could also be up there as well, but I'm I'm finding it really hard to to imagine a winner who isn't called Tadeo Jonas. Yeah, I I agree with that. But it's just argue you could argue the angle that because we're not seeing much of Pogatra, it actually creates more intrigue and more excitement going into the tour. Because if we'd seen if we see him racing and stuff and we're like oh you know he's only racing the slovenian kind of national races we don't know what to gauge from this actually that's exciting in its own sense because that will always leave an element of oh but we, we don't know how he actually is and it always creates this element of mystique around how pagatra is actually going to be going inside into the tour obviously Jonas is this big kind of sphere right now where he has taken up all the favoritism here but i think that pagatra is always gonna be there in terms of another name yeah like a hindley could maybe do something but the only thing that's gonna stop Jonas is is either a tade or some badly timed incident that's going to kind of affect Jonas in, in the tour that's just unlucky and that seems to just be the way that cycling is at the moment of the Tour de France. Okay, what about his team? Uh, we've talked about his team a lot. Obviously, Kelderman's added to that. Van Baal, he was here in the Dauphiné, looked very strong. Sepp Kuss, obviously, we know he's come from the Giro. Nathan Van Hoendoing, Christopher Laporte, who was at the Dauphiné as well. Thies Benoit and Wout Van Aert, who's at the Tour de Suisse. To be honest with you, we were we were talking about this last week, was the uh, Kelderman versus Dylan Van Baal thing. And I don't know, for some, some literally because it's just racing this week, it's sort of turned on its head a little bit. Van Baal did look quite good in that Dauphiné stage today in stage eight, whereas Kelderman's hemorrhage time in the TT today at the Tour de Suisse mm. on a stage where, you know, he should be up there gaining time. He, he has done very good time trials in the past. He finished on the same time as Julian Bernard. Like he lost time to guys like, I'm not saying Julian Bernard is a bad match, but I'm saying that Kelderman needs to be doing better. Julian Bernard's father won a time trial at Mont Ventoux. That doesn't mean he himself is is specifically is... notable, but it's 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 nepotism. It's in there. But yeah, <laughs> this isn't Mont Ventoux. This is Switzerland around a lake. Yeah, I agree. I feel like our discussion last week about Jumbo Visma is dated like a bag of piss. It is. It has not stood the test of time. Van Bala looked okay, like good at points. Um, so he's probably sort of hardening his position in, in that Tour de France squad but yeah, I mean we'll wait and see what Kelderman does but at the moment given that Kreisweig has abandoned that that's the update we need to give Kreisweig crashed out of Dauphiné and he's not going to be at the Tour de France that means that Kelderman's in the squad who's the next reserve we don't know rumor has it might be Roglic I personally think Walter would should be there but what do I know do you think but, this team is stronger than last year that's probably a good question I think the other teams are stronger than Yumbo is. I think I think UAE is really, really strong this year. Like remarkably stronger than it was last year with so many of their recruitments. Also the fact that half half of UAE pulled out quite early on with COVID and injuries. This year I think UAE is gonna look really good. You see that like Adam Yates is well, he was up there in the mountains, second place overall here, beating the people that Pogacha and Jonas will be racing against. Uh, Miguel Biel won a time trial against Jonas Vingegaard. You cross over and you see like Mike has been looking pretty good this year. You see that like his teammates are riding well this season and they're ready and they're really, really committed to, 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 to Tade. 
I think the other squad this year is almost equally as strong as it is last year. Maybe without Roglic, that changes a little bit, but I think I think they'll probably ride in a similar fashion in terms of their manpower. It's quite similar. I just think that like UAE will be different and maybe the other rivals as well will bring stronger teams that won't be depleted through COVID and all these outbreaks this year. Yeah. There's no cobbles. Yes. That, that that's a good point. But like you're saying, the lack of Roglic, you know, a lot of people have pointed out in the comments section about how Without Roglic last year of the tour, and it is definitely a very valid point, but without Roglic of the tour last year, beating Tade might not have been possible. You could also argue that Jonas did, well, Wabanart technically dropped Pagacha on up Otakam. So in theory, would Jonas have won anyway? I don't know, but sure, that Vakalan on stage was a definite big, like, gash in Pagacha's ability to win that tour. Without Roglic here, it's definitely going to be a more mano-a-mano thing, because no offence to a Kelderman or a Koos or anybody like that, but they're not going to serve the same role or provide the same threat that a Roglic has, who has been a competitor to Tade for, for years now. So I would argue, like Ewan was saying, that I don't think this year's Jumbo Visma squad is as strong as last year's squad. I am certainly more excited to see what UAE are going to bring in terms of being the more aggressors I suppose and I think they're going to come out swinging especially with opening two stages which suit Tade arguably a bit more in terms of a bit more punchy and stuff and we've definitely seen that Pigach is a bit better over that kind of stuff than uh, than Jonas is so yeah looking forward to seeing what UAE are going to do you know they were look good last year like McNulty and, and Bjerger certainly seem to have stepped up this year as well so I think for Jumbo are going to need to keep Jonas wrapped in cotton wool because they don't have that secondary leader to provide that like fallback option or the ability to one two. It's going to be all on Jonas. Anyway, moving the conversation on to well, remaining on the Tour de France podium. You and kind of alluded to this. This Patrick wanted to talk about this from the Dauphiné. We've talked a lot. Who's going to be that third place on the Tour de France podium? If we say Jonas Bingo, Pugaccia, whatever order is it one and two. Who's going to be that lucrative third place that we've seen Ineos kind of take in a few for the last few years? And uh, yeah, we'll get on to Ineos as well after this. But yeah, who do you kind of think is the prime riders for this position? It's, it's hard to say. I think there's quite a few riders in the fray. We didn't see a, a David Godu on good form at the Dauphiné. But if he can bring, like we were talking months ago in Paris-Nice when we were getting this hype going about David Godu finishing on the podium of a tour, if he can refine that, then there's absolutely no reason why he couldn't be a podium contender. But based upon what I've seen at the Dauphiné, David Godu is not that guy right now. I would argue that the strongest candidate is Jai Hindley. Based upon his Grand Tour, I want to say pedigree, his ability to do well in Grand Tours, the fact that he's done well in the Dauphiné, you know, he wasn't like brilliant, but that's that's good. That leaves room for improvement. I think that he's got what it takes over three weeks. His TTing isn't even that bad, even though there's only one TT and it's very hilly in the tour this year. I just think that, that Jai has a really good chance. The only downside that he has is that his team is also fairly sprint focused in this race as well Bora's done that for years you know the Sagan eras definitely when he was at Bora they did that a lot but that's the only weakness I have with Jai I would say that he's my strongest candidate for third I agree I, I feel like Hinley's a guy I could imagine being in that third spot at the, at the Tour de France you know sometimes you need that sort of like creativity and visualizing what, what a podium could look like and I feel like Hinley is a guy that could definitely be there 
I'm starting to feel like, I mean, I've been saying it since last year, Richard Carapaz will finish third. I don't think that I'm starting to feel like he's missing that edge. I don't think we've seen top tier Carapaz this year. He won the Mercantor Classic. Great. Second place was Felix Gal. He will never touch the top 10 at the Tour de France. Felix, if you're watching, I love you, but it's just real. You know, it, it just feels like Carapaz is really missing that. I think we saw quite snakes and ladders Carapaz even here at... Uh, at the Dauphiné, it wasn't really a consistent performance. And one thing Carapaz has been so good at over the past couple of years in Grand Tours is that squeaky clean consistency. Um, so for me, Hinley, I think, is probably in a really, really good position. I'm, I'm struggling to imagine Ben O'Connor in third place of the Tour de France. But if you told me this in two months' time, I wouldn't be shocked, you know? I mean, Carapaz had like a flash on stage six, I think, where he was attacking off the front or was stage seven on Dauphiné and then just disappeared and finished behind the group. And Esteban Chavez, I actually think, finished higher than him in MGC. So, yeah, a bit of a shame. But, uh, but yeah. even Chavez on the final stage lost 10 places in, in the general classification. There's just no consistency yeah. here yeah. as well. It's, yeah. it's strange. I feel like the other problem is that when you look at the top 10 in GC for this Dauphiné, you know, you've got Hagen fifth who's come off a Giro, so, you know, he's probably not even going to the tour. And there's Guillaume Martin, Leo, Louis Mienquez, Tosten Tlayen, is that how you pronounce it, Scott? <laughs> uh, Carlos Rodriguez. That was a shock and, that he was there. And Yeah, and, and Julian Alaphilippe. It's like, I don't know, those names aren't sticking out to me. I mean, just to provide another name, what about Enrique Mass? I know he wasn't here yeah, in this Dauphiné, but he's not a rider who te- who usually goes that well in in the stage races. A bit like Hindley, he tends to pull it out quite well for the for the Grand Tours. There's the lack of the TTKs. Movistar are very good as a Grand Tour team. You know they don't have that sprinter element in there because Gaviria went to the to the Giro. Would you consider Mass could come out of the the woodwork? Yeah, I I think he's a guy that you can imagine being in third place here. He's done it at the Vuelta with the second places behind Roglic and Avonapol as well. And he's shown that he can be really consistent if he's there. He's missed the mark at the past two tours to France, even the past three tours to France. I think he's kind of, I mean, it's just not being great. He's he's finished like close to top 10 or in top 10 all times, but it's not been like a sort of outstanding Enric Mass performance and super consistent like he, had, five, like he is in the Vuelta. Five, sixth and fifth. That's not too bad. It's solid, but jumping up to third? Yeah. No, I, I mean, I can see it happening, though. I mean, the main thing is that Ineos don't really have a challenger. That's, the, that's kind of the main thing. Egan Bernal on. missing that. Come on. Nah. We're going to go on to them, but Egan Bernal and then Danny Martinez has just been letting me down so much this season. He's rumored to be going to Bora next year, so um, maybe his impetus to sort of Right, a barnstorming Tour de France might be missed. It's sort of distilling to be Pogac and Vingegaard. I also would be hugely shocked if one of their teammates ended up on the podium. If we had a Wilco Kelderman or a Adam Yates, for instance, in third place. Yeah, true. Uh, well, anyways, you kind of touched on there. Ineos Grandis, all conquering Tour de France winners in, well, recent times. Well, not so recent time anymore, but... Uh, yeah, are they in crisis right now? Egon Bernal is kind of nowhere. Danny Martinez as well, as you guys said. And uh, yeah, the Tour de France coming up now, it doesn't look like they're going to be hitting the same heights as they have in the past. Just, I don't know what expectations other people have, but in terms of my expectations, they are underperforming quite a lot. They did do a good Giro, to be fair, they did. But like going into this tour, man, it's just like, yeah, like Martinez, 
Carlos Rodriguez, who was looking so good at the Vuelta last year. It's like, what what has happened? <laughs> what has gone wrong with this team? It's just, it's vanished. I'm, I am just literally looking at Ineos Grenadiers going into this tour with the same expectation that I would have for a a stage hunter team, to be honest with you. I'm not really, I can't think of a, a stage hunter team name just off the bat. I don't want to be throwing names out, but I'm looking at like, I'm like, well, I'm just looking at Pidcock. I'm like, what, what's he going to do, basically, is what I'm seeing. But I don't have any GC aspirations for Ineos going into this tour. Is that too harsh, or is that is that fairly on? I would some, I, I would actually somewhat agree. I feel like Ineos... The thing is, I don't know if they're underperforming. I think they're performing better in different areas. The young guns are doing, doing really well. Maybe they shift out some of the focus on the old guys and bring in the younger guys. I think it'll be really, really cool. This isn't going to happen, let's be realistic. But if they threw in, like... Ben Tullett, Magnus Sheffield, if they put Pippo Ganner in the Tour de France team and these guys and fill out a Tour de France squad of their really bright stars and then let them chase out stages with the likes of Tom Pitcock and so forth. I think that would be great, but I don't know. We're probably going to see Danny Martinez and Egan Bernal there. And Danny Martinez has been really un- underwhelming me this year. I don't think he'll be tough. I don't think he'll be in third place at the Tour de France. Egan Bernal, his long road to recovery is an incredibly long road. I don't even know how long that road will be. Um, so, I mean, it, it's different, but I think, yeah, stages, at least one should be their goal because they didn't get any out of the Giro. Yes, they rode a good GC race, but they come to win Tour de France stages and perform well in GC. If they can't do one, really go full for the other one, you know? You don't want to miss the mark on two things completely. At least go all in for one of them. So what could be a really, really good scenario is that if Danny Martinez loses 10 minutes in the in the opening week of stage uh, in the opening week of stages at like the stage two Larence, then he switches his focus onto stage hunting a bit like Catapath did at last year's Walter and we see him try to go for stages whilst Pickcock and all those guys also try try to attack it but for the time being I think this is also maybe a result of Ineos completely shifting over the past two years as well well we've noticed a sort of sense of change they've been like scaling back they've been bringing up new talents they've been going more their tactics have been more fluid and exciting and I think we could see a Tour de France that might just be sort of a reflection of this change of, of, of trend for the squad they got a lot of Netflix time as well with Gary and Thomas which uh, I mean the amount of time you saw him getting massaged was quite funny uh, I mean, yeah, Rodriguez, Bernal, Martinez. Do you think Rodriguez is their best chance of a top five, maybe? Yeah, realistically, he is. Like, if, you, if you put in a gun to my head and ask me which one it is, I'd say Rodriguez, probably, based on the fact that he did good of a Vuelta last year in like his Grand Tour debut. That was a really promising sign. Was okay at the Dauphiné, got better as the stages went on. I'd say that he provides the most realistic GC aspiration for the Ineos Grenadiers. Maybe they just say, you, that's just what you're going to do. It's the Tour, you know, just learn. Because the Tour's slightly different to the other Grand Tours, so I've heard. Um, it's just a little bit more hectic, a little bit me- mental. So... um We'll wait and see. I think Rodriguez is the most realistic aspiration, but I reckon they're probably seeing like stage one. They've probably got that earmarked for Pidcock, probably to try and take yellow on stage one because it's a very punchy finish. Perhaps they're thinking oh, that's the realistic kind of yellow jersey to be taking. Might be the only yellow jersey they take throughout the race. Let's be real with you. What I'd like from Pidcock is I don't think he'll win stage one. I think Van der Poel and Van Aert and even Pogacar, I think they really want it. Van der Poel's like going to win stage one and. I feel like what I really like from Pickcock is to probably hold back. I know I just said like about Lance, but if he holds back, maybe loses like a minute over the first couple of days, 
goes in the breakaway on the stage to Lahance, takes the yellow jersey from one of these big GC teams because they don't want to control it from start to finish. If Pickcock wore the wore the yellow jersey for like, it would be from there until maybe the Grand Colombier stage in the second week. I think that would be a really, really cool race. And I think Pickcock, that'd be a great experience for him to experience the yellow jersey. He got a stage win last year. If he got a breakaway, stay, a breakaway yellow jersey stint, I think that would be really cool. Also for the team as well, because they haven't worn the yellow jersey since COVID. Yeah, which is That's something true. they used to do an awful lot. They're now better at the Giro at doing this than, than, than at the Tour de France. So for them to wear the yellow jersey, I think would be good. Even in terms of like the 2019 Tour de France, they only wore it for one stage in terms of the actual racing. We haven't seen an Ineos jersey in, in that yellow jersey really at all since that name change in 2019. I think you're right. It'll be like uh, Juan P. Lopez for Giro last year. Kind of very similar to that, but put Pidcock in there instead. I think that is a, a good goal which Ineos could try and go for. Maybe he could do a ripping descent off of a tourmalet on like stage six. We'll just get a repeat of of stage twelve from uh, from last year's Tour de France. That could be kind of cool. That'll be good for the next Netflix series. Get the next one. Get the next Pidcock Demon Descending segment into that Netflix bit. They'll be rubbing their hands together. They'll be like, please, please do that. He's hoping to like have his own spin-off show. You know how like they'll have like a sitcom and then like the, the character that people like, they'll give them a spin-off show. Like how Joey from Friends got his own show. It'd be like that, but like Tom Peacock only doing descending videos. And that's Netflix's new aim is to like make a Tom Peacock docu- documentary about him descending. That would be quite funny. Uh, but I mean, how do they get out of this rot as well? We've talked about Repco Venable going to Ineos Grandes, obviously. But like, is it just a transition period and they have to kind of wait for Pukach and Vingor to retire or just their young guns to develop? I mean, probably the latter. I mean, lots of teams go through development phases. UAE, a little bit during like the 2017-18 period, they went through a re- reshuffle until Pogaccio really emerged. Jumbo Visma in the mid-2010s. Do you remember how mid they were? They were sort of... Belko. Yeah. Belkin. Like, the, yeah, the Belkin team. That was a sort of a criminally mid-squad. And even when they changed to the yellow Jumbo jerseys back in 2015-16, they were kind of average. Claire Hunger, Kleiswijk came through but they just needed more direction but the trend here is that there's usually like a rider that would give the team direction and a goal i don't know if they have that headline grabbing rider they desperately wanted to be pitcock but i don't think he's a strong enough general classification rider that's kind of what they're missing rodriguez is leaving apparently or maybe um martinez is leaving as well we believe to bora hansborough so they need to find like this new star maybe it's remco maybe it's roglic let's reopen the that that transfer rumor mill from from last year just after the Tour de France so I mean it, it, it's hard to tell maybe like a really seminal Tour de France where they ride a really really good race that could change the vibe really to be honest yeah I think you're right they need that rider who can spearhead them like like your Pagatra or something like that I'm just looking for who's out of contract next year just trying to find so Roglic one works it's just it, it just does. would work it does kind of work. I mean, like Teo's out of contract as well. So whether they're going to keep him or not, I'm not really too sure. Do they go back to the Sprinter Avenue? Would that be a thing which they should consider? They should buy both Fabio Jakobsen and Olaf Koy. Yes, there you go. That is the solution to go with. Buy both of them and have a lead out made of like Michael Leonard and Josh Tarling. That could work. Yeah. But they... I, I feel like they've kind of left sprinting behind. Elliot Viani is still technically there. Blast from the past. But I, yeah, I I think 
I think they they desperately want to be these kind of like wild card rogue riders, which they're, they're good at. I, I do just feel like they need like a one sort of like watershed Grand Tour moment, a bit like Boris Giro last year, where like the team, they like had a completely different strategy. It worked out really well and they should just continue being that. Yeah, they're probably going to be watching the Tour de l'Avenir again and trying to sweep up the podium. But nevertheless, moving on, there were plenty of other races as well going on this week. We had the one day race in Switzerland, which was hoovered up by... Uh, Tibor Ness and uh, we've also had the Asian National well Asian Continental Championships and the senior title was won by an 18 year old Thai rider so that's quite impressive but uh, I mean out of the racing that's happened is there anything you've kind of seen to anything interesting well fans of women's racing look away now because I'm going to uh, mention a pretty crazy sort of turn of events in um in the Tour Pyrenees, which has a, a lot of chaos. So riders were right, literally riding. The peloton was happening whilst there's oncoming traffic and cars right, driving towards the peloton. It was bad. Safety precautions are really bad. The route wasn't very well, well designed. Today, it was supposed to be stage three. The route was completely cancelled. The stage was completely cancelled. Um, but the riders' union stepped in. I think this shows, I mean, sorry, boring political science graduate moment here but the but the the union the workers union for these for the writers has done a really really good job of sort of stepping in and taking action against races having dangerous routes dangerous safety lack of safety precautions and all this kind of stuff to make things more realistic and that's really been helped by adam hansen who's now the head of the writers union it was very ineffective beforehand there were language problems but adam hansen's done a really good job at like meeting the writers and talking to them even at like monte Lasari, um and at the Giro he was like talking to the riders as they went into the cable car on the way down the hill to say like oh what could we improve about this Giro Italia what can we do to make it safer and, and more effective and it's good to see that the union has really changed the tides I know it's boring we don't get racing but do you really want to see Emma Norsgaard ride into the back of a Peugeot at 60 kilometers an hour no no one does so you know I, I think it's a good scene and a good turn of events, even if, I mean, the race was an absolute sort of casino, as the Italians would say. That's absolutely incredible. I mean, uh, we're going to go on to bash uh, British cycling, but um, yeah, that's quite incredible. We also had the ZLM tour as well. And uh, Bass Tiedemeyer's team took a stage win, but overall was won by Olaf Koy. We've talked about Olaf Koy so much. And uh, yeah, what did you guys think of this stage or stage race? It's quite an interesting one, to say the least. I mean, yeah. Koi winning is a pretty, I mean, that's a really good thing for him, let's face it, considering that, I mean, it's not like his stock needed to be any higher, let's face it. I think there's, I'm quite excited to see, when is it that the transfers can get announced? Is it like 1st of August or something like that? Officially, officially on August 1st, but sometimes like the rumors get so like reliable that they just pretty much quasi announce it. Um, the teams don't quasi announce it, but like the audience kind of know 100%. Yeah, but I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to happen with Koi because I know it's a ZLM tour. I know it's not the highest caliber race or like the highest caliber sprinters there, but he's just he's just too good. Is is Koi? And I know that it wasn't like overly dominant. You know, like like Scott said, the breakaway did win one day. That was a bit of a blunder from a peloton, and GC was largely won through just basically all the sprinters did a good prologue, pretty much. And then it was just one on bonus seconds. So it wasn't like a very exciting GC battle that you can read into much. Like there were no hills anywhere. 
But, you know, it was good to see, you know, Marechko on a stage. He's still around. He's still going. Welshford was there as well. And it was just a good kind of sprinting race just to kind of fill out fill out dead parts in the in the week, if that's what you were kind of wanting, if the Dauphiné wasn't enough for you. Very true. Uh, we also had a victory from Jasper Philipsen in the Brugge one-day race. And uh, I mean, it's it's just good for kind of what's what's to come in the Tour de France. But nevertheless, British cycling. Uh, Patrick wanted to do this segment last week, and we forgot about it. And uh, yeah, Patrick, what is it? Well, I feel like we bashed British cycling so much. The Nationals are in red card uh, in next week, two weeks, whatever. So that's going to be quite exciting. But nevertheless, Patrick, why was it that you wanted to bash British cycling this time? On this week's episode of why British cycling are shit is that the essence of it is that they are stopping or very drastically aware of reducing funding to the under 23 road scene which basically means that GB won't send and squad to races like the Tour de l'Avenir which are a nation like they're a national kind of under 23 race which is kind of a shame when you consider that we have had a lot of talent like your Pidcocks and your haters for example Thomas Glogue as well who have gone through the Tour de l'Avenir and gained their fame and been recognized through races like that British Cycling seems to be wanting to focus more upon sending funding to the track schemes which does make sense in in a in a way because track does produced like you you've had riders like hater like vernon and other really good british talent who go onto track and then convert to road so it's not like a you do track and you only do track you know there is a conversion between the two but they want to focus more on track rather than road which is just a bit of a shame and i just think that they're cutting back on funding for for reasons that i can't quite remember but it's just a bit of a shame that basically the generation of british talent is just going to be even harder unless they go to uh, under 23 teams which is kind of British Cycling's like way out it's like oh look at like the Group Armour under 23 team or look at Trinity our riders will just go to these teams instead but it just kind of sucks that we don't we might not have representation at Tour de l'Avenir with, with the riders going elsewhere that has to be funded either privately or there's a current charity called the Dave Rayner Fund which helps uh, young British riders move into Europe and, and race internationally this might also create like a wealth divide as well in British cycling, which is already there in terms of sort of um, kids who have wealthier backgrounds and so forth become more pros of people who don't have that kind of background. But for instance, like with sort of, can, can you afford to, to move to Europe? Can you afford to do all this kind of stuff? Like, can, can you can you can you raise the sort of this Assen Junior Tour privately? Can you do that? Can you afford that? And that might create a bit of a wealth of fire. But elsewhere, I think it just shows like there are some systemic problems in British cycling at the moment. And I think they really need to sort of address them. Maybe there are people in sort of leadership roles that need to sort of be questioned and so forth. But it's, it's, there's been a chain of some really quite damning investigations and damning turn of events over the past couple of months on a number of different things um, that don't look very good on the organization. Yeah, the Yates brothers as well did very well at the Tour de l'Avenir. But I mean, if they're just going to under 23 teams, they're not going to the Tour de l'Avenir. As you said, it's national teams. Ugh, yeah, British cycling. Anyway, on a brighter note, our favorite part of the show, 
writer of the week and uh, i mean we don't even have to ask uh patrick i think but uh uh yeah let's start with you and you and who's your writer of the week this week i mean it, it's such an open goal so open humongous he won two stages and was completely dominant in Dauphiné, one by two and a half minutes. I cannot avoid him as my rider of the week. Sorry that I've taken him off the table already. Well, fair enough. I was really worried you were just going to pick mine and then I was going to be left high and dry. I mean, I could have done that. You know, my my honorary choice is, is a rider rides rhymes with Schmackschmuel. I am once again going to be picking... Max Poole as my rider of a week, who is from Yorkshire, just so that we all remember this part. No, he didn't win the white jersey. He didn't have the greatest stage eight, but of the quad affair, he was really good. As a lot of focus was on Oscar Only, I think it's really good to see that Max Poole came through. He did good at the Tour of Romandy, and it's good to see that he backed that up at the Dauphiné. Fair enough. I mean, uh, yeah, Ewan took Jonas Vingor, but I'm going to pick Miguel Biao because he took his first ever time trial and uh, it was quite an emotional one for him as well. So I think that was quite an interesting win for him or a spectacular win for him. Really suffered in going from the under-23s to the World Tour. So it was kind of what we said earlier with the UAT Emirates kind of dominance in the Dauphiné kind of behind the Jumbo Visma. But uh, yeah, nevertheless, uh, that's it. Or this is it for the 20th episode of the Echelon Cycling Podcast. Of course, we're available on all the different platforms if you would rather want to listen to us. And uh, make sure to hit the like button, subscribe to the channel as well. We're so close to a thousand right now. But that's it for us. So thank you very much for watching and we will see you next week.